Hello, I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Start Up podcast brought to you by Tacklebox, the accelerator program for founders with full-time jobs. Today, we've got an awesome interview I have been super excited to release ever since we recorded it. We've got Rich Fulop, co-founder of Brooklinen, talking about how Brooklinen came to be. This is an amazing story, and it also holds a ton of technical knowledge that will be helpful for you and your startup. We talk through everything from early ideation to how he tested and built early on to how they were able to grow before VC funds were interested to supply chain to branding and design and finally kind of tying it all back to see how you can do it with your startup. I had a blast chatting with Rich. He's incredibly inspirational and it shows how a bias towards action coupled with a thoughtful approach and clear messaging can do wonders. As a side note, I am a customer of Brooklinen. I cannot recommend them highly enough. This has nothing to do with the podcast. I wasn't asked to do this, but it is true. I just got these super plush towels and they're amazing. I love using them whenever Ruby hasn't stolen them when I'm in the shower and taking them to the back of her crate. Um, This is, I guess, a free slogan for Brooklyn if they want to take it. Towels so good that Brian's dog Ruby steals them more than any other item in the apartment. Anyway, here's Rich. I hope you enjoy and have a great week. So Rich, for people who don't know, tell me a little bit about Brooklyn and and how you guys got started. Sure. Thanks, Brian. Um, So my name is Rich. Co-founder and CEO of Brooklyn. Uh, we're an online uh, digitally native home goods company. Um, we started off with just bedding to start, but now we do a lot more than that. Branched out into a lot of different categories to really cover you know, what we call comfort in your home, you know, 360 degrees. Awesome. So as background, a lot of our listeners are early stage founders, early stage entrepreneurs. So it seems incredibly daunting to me to build this type of company. And I'm really interested in sort of the origin story about where the idea came from and how you were able to take those first steps. Sure. Yeah. Our start is a little untraditional. Um, This is a business that was bootstrapped for two and a half years. And uh, we were fortunate to execute very, very well in the early days, which allowed us to get to some pretty decent scale, you know, while bootstrapping before we raised any money. But the beginning days were were challenging and you know, proving the concept, getting some belief in customers and you know, the investor community, everything was was really challenging. The idea started in 2000, late 2012, early 2013. My wife and I actually went on a vacation and I was in business school at the time. She was working at a PR agency. We got away for a vacation. We actually checked into the hotel, put our stuff down and we sat on the bed because we were exhausted from travel. And we felt the sheets like kind of randomly. And we both kind of had this moment like, oh my God, these sheets are so nice. It was very, very strange. We've never had that conversation before (laughs) specifically about that product. So the hotel we were staying in actually sold all the products in the room. So the chairs, the rugs, the the bed frame, the night table, and the sheets, of course. When we went to the store at the hotel to try and buy them and bring them home, the core sheet set was $450. The duvet cover was another $450. Pillowcases were $150 or so. So we're $1,000 for that sheet set. And you know, I think it's important that I said I was a student at the time. So we weren't, <laughs> that wasn't exactly, that didn't exactly fit into our budget at, at the time. So um, really what happened was um, I, ha- I tried to figure out a way and I can, I tend to go on these like, internet deep dives when I get hooked on something. So I was, uh, you know, I found myself in 
like years old threads and forums, you know, in the deep underworld of the internet, you know, people actually talking about the same thing. And there was like quite a community like down there of people that were like, where can I get that? They're so good. Who makes them? What's it made of? Like there were so many questions and not a lot of answers there. There was no one like moderating the forum on that. Um, it was on Reddit and, and elsewhere. And then actually that kind of had a light bulb going in my head that, you know, there's demand out there for sure. I can't quantify it right now, but I'm not crazy, really. <laughs> there's a lot of <laughs> other people out there. So um, I really tried to figure out what they were and you know who made them, all those questions, and see if I can you know, back channel my way to get a set for myself. It wasn't really like, oh, I'm going to start this business. It's going to be like, how do I just get the sheets at a discount price was really like the <laughs> original goal. Um, and then we started to see factors and then uh, factors that like contributed to our, you know, our idea to actually make this a business. Um, we didn't end up buying them for a thousand dollars and I couldn't find who made those specific sheets. But when we came back to New York, we were then in market to buy and we found ourselves at a big box store or department store, or really like a high-end boutique home goods store. And none of those really fit what, how we shop or our aesthetic or our price point. They just didn't really jive or fit. There's either the bad buying experience of the big box. You have fluorescent lights, zipper bags, colors, no information, no reviews, no product knowledge, no details. You have a lot of clutter in the department stores, similar, but you know maybe a little better merchandising. And then you got the high-end stores that were you know predominantly uptown that, uh, it was very expensive and there was nothing that was a cool brand at the right price with the right value propositions that was really like speaking to us, the customer, which is when we really were like, we should make this. And it was early days for uh, direct to consumer brands in 2013. There weren't many out there. You're talking about like Warby Parker or Bonobos really. And both of those had you know only the original plastic frames that were $95 and Bonobos was really only like slacks at that mm -hmm. point. They didn't have like their whole ensemble, both of them. So it was one product. We do it great. We do it better. We cut out the middleman and um, just give amazing value to the customer. And we thought there was room in bedding to start, but really the whole bedroom mm -hmm. and then the whole home really, because there's branding and furniture, hard goods, but the soft goods is really fragmented. Interesting. So you saw the use case definitely in the bedroom. And then you, from early days, you were thinking like pretty big scale. Yeah. I mean, yes and no. Like, of course we're thinking big scale. Like we want to make the business as big as possible. We didn't know how big it could be. We didn't know how big the audience was. Um, we also didn't know how big the product mix would be because we knew what we wanted the sheet. We were optimizing towards what we wanted the sheets to feel like. And, you know, we knew we wanted it to be crisp and cool and lightweight and not suffocating and soft cotton and no, um, no synthetics, no polyester, anything in there. So we knew all these attributes and then we had to engineer to get the product to be exactly that and then communicate it to the customer. And we thought like maybe it was the you know silver bullet of one product that's amazing and that's it. That's it's the hero product for us. But really that opened the door to, you know, people really liked the brand and the value proposition and the product, but then they wanted more. So as we built that relationship with customers, they're like, you know, we love your sheets. You know, where can I get equally as good pillows? Where can I get equally as good blankets? Hmm. Where can I get comforters? What detergent should I use? And with all these questions that are, you know, we're fielding, they really all just presented opportunities for us to further service the customers because we want to be their go-to choice for this stuff. So it's really about listening closely and just being able to, to satisfy them. I love that. And I, I want to dig into that in a little bit in terms of vertical versus horizontal growth early on. Um, but let's, let's backtrack because I think a lot of our founders will have a similar-ish insight to you where it's like, I know what the product needs to be for it to be successful but they have no experience making a product 
And so that first step is really daunting. So how, one, did you have any experience making physical products or with supply chain? And two, how did you go about exploring that? Uh, my wife and I had zero experience in this, like not even close. We came from very, very different fields. Um, I was in business school when we launched the company. I worked in sports for the few years before that and then in finance for the five, six years prior to that. She went to law school and then worked in public relations. So she really had no experience either on that end. But you know, we're both like to think we have good taste and we are early adopters of brands and trends. And like we kind of can see through the clutter and we're very we have a lot of synergy in, in that between the two of us. We, we think alike. So we had to get smart on the topic to figure out how to make it. The first thing we did was honestly go to Barnes and Noble uh, and get a stack of textile books and really understand mm -hmm. how things are woven and what makes a fabric feel like the way it does, because you have so many different shirts or pants or anything, and they're all fabric of some sort, probably a lot of cotton, but they all feel unique and different. And the question is why? And we had to get smart so we can communicate with factories and manufacturers and say, here's what we want, X, Y, and Z. And that made the conversation, A, that made them take us more seriously. Um, and B, we had less exposure to get scammed or anything. We, we had more product knowledge and we just sounded smarter when we did that, which was important in the early days. So it was really about getting smart on the space and then having conviction that you know, this is going to work. This is what the market needs and we're going to make it happen one way or another. So you, so it sounds like you figured out what the initial product needed to be and feel like. Um, then there's still a big gap between that and releasing a product and then building a company. So what were you thinking next once you had a sense of what the product needed to be? Yeah, we didn't really, we, we took it step by step. We didn't really want, we weren't thinking too far ahead. We were thinking like small goals. And I think that's really, really important. So you have checkpoints, milestones, just to make sure that you're moving in the right direction. If you're, if you're thinking about a billion dollars from the get-go, there's so much that happens in between, you know, phase one and that, that like you might not even get there. You're just way ahead of your skis at that point. So, you know, the first one for us was actually getting the product and finding a manufacturer. So we got on planes, we made calls, we sent emails. Um, we're, we're really just talking to factories all over the world to figure out who makes what, what are the value proposition, what are the costs? We also did a lot of customer surveying. So we went around to stores, to coffee shops, to on the street, just to talk to people and ask them a few like quick hit questions. So, you know, like, do you shop online? You know, where do you buy your home goods? Um, there was a series of questions probably took, you know, one minute, but it was just trying to position to see if there was appetite for it. How much are you spending on your home goods? Do you care what brands like these things? And as we kept hearing, like, I don't know. I, I love this, but I don't know where to find it. You know, here's how much I pay. And then they really all informed us of like how we need to position our product on that. And then with that, you know, we had the product and then it's not really about like, if you build it, they will come like the field of dreams. <laughs> it's like, you have to do a lot of hard work to get in front of people. So what we did first, the vehicle that we used was Kickstarter in 2014. And there weren't a lot of these direct to consumer products in Kickstarter at the time. So what we did was we put a goal up of $50,000, um, no marketing. We didn't know how to do digital marketing either. We didn't know how to manufacture. We didn't know how to do marketing. We didn't know anything at that point. We just knew what we wanted to make. And um, yeah, we ended up blowing out our goal of, you know, it was a $50,000 goal. We ended up doing a quarter million dollars of sales in the first 30 days. And really then we were off to the races because you get that money minus Kickstarter's commission or cut. And then that actually funds the first uh, purchase order, which then the wheels are turning. And then mm -hmm. you have to fulfill for the customers and you can get all the sizes and details and all that stuff. 
And then after that, it's just about keeping momentum and treating your customers great. Your early adopters are like the most important people. It was, I believe this was five years ago, it was 1,703 people that backed us. Uh-huh. Yeah. And those were the most important people, like really to take care of them and have them talk about us. And really our mentality was if we can get all these people to refer one person, the business doubles in size, mm-hmm. and then we can just do it again and again, and again, the right way. And we didn't spend any money in marketing. Um, we sent samples to media just to with handwritten notes that said hey here's what we're doing uh, here's the idea it would be great if you wrote about us and you know really you know showed your audience you know what we're trying to do and see i think it'd be a good fit and it worked really really well we got a lot of coverage yeah so do you think a lot of those customers came from the press or, or where did the customers come from yeah. uh, press i would say was huge um the kickstarter community um friends and family like we were you, you got to be humble so i was on Facebook and LinkedIn. Um, I'm sure Instagram was a thing then. Like, but uh, on Facebook, um, you know, just sending to all my friends and my personal audience, and always saying like, "Here's what we're doing. We would appreciate so much if you can share this because when you get someone to share, then it shares to their community, and then if you do the same thing and you ask them to say, "Hey, my friend's doing this." Um, and you give some people the motivation and people just really need to be asked. It doesn't hurt to ask. And then as you do that, the network grows and then people helped us to, to get the word out. So it was that combined with press because the press we got was very untraditional. We didn't go to like home decor magazines or blogs or anything. And that's what we did was we went to surprise ones, some business ones. We went to you know GQ, to Vogue, to Fast Company, to Forbes, like really where you would think like people aren't expecting to read about this idea, but like. They could be a customer and maybe if something goes off like, oh, this sounds good. I can use that. It was really our, our tactic on that. So we actually targeted more of those untraditional, not home goods um, verticals. That's clever. Where did that idea come from? Uh, my wife was uh, Vicky. She's, um, she's really, really good at PR and press. And it was like her tactic really from she worked in a totally different space. She worked in beauty PR, but she knew how to speak to editors and she knew how how it works to communicate with them and get coverage and, you know, what the ins and outs were of that. So she knew who we needed to get in front of at that point. We didn't have connections per Uh se. It was really just about the tactics. Great. I have two uh, questions before we move forward from there. So first you mentioned that you were speaking with people and you mentioned like coffee shops and other places. I'm just curious about the logistics of that. Of Like, were you literally walking up to strangers and asking them or how does that? Yeah. Um, we would see, you know, it was better when people were alone, you know, if they had a, you know, so you're not interrupting anything. So they're alone, they have headphones in or something and they, you know, they're doing a little work or reading or whatever they're doing at the coffee shop. And I was in school again, it's important to say I was in school. So if I go up to somebody and say, Hey, I'm working on a school project, which I was because I did use this as a case pretty much in all my classes. I was working on it while I was in school. I went to school from 2012 to 2014. So over the course of it, whether it was marketing, supply chain, operations, pricing strategies, this was my project I used in a lot of classes. So I would go up to people and say like, hey, you know, I'm working on a class project. I go to NYU. Can you help me, you know, with a 30 second survey? So I can get and yeah, people are willing to help. You know, generally, people are nice. If you're nice to them and, you know, humble, then uh, they're willing to help. So I'd ask them rapid fire a few questions uh, and just, you know, try and get some data to really inform all the stuff I was working on on the side. Cool. I love that. Um, next question is a little bit of a different path. So you and your wife are working on this now. Kickstarter hits, it's like a, a very real thing. 
how are you emotionally? Like, how is, how are you guys thinking about this? Is this like daunting? Are you worried about stuff? Are you, you know, uh, husband and wife working on the same thing, eggs in a risky basket? I'm curious as to how you guys were thinking about it. Yeah. And that's super risky. I mean, I just got an MBA from you know a top 10 school and I was interviewing for all kinds of jobs that were uh, as a hedge on this, just in case we didn't hit our Kickstarter goal, mm-hmm. uh, you know, consulting firms and, you know, really you know, high paying jobs. So I knew if I, w- if I went down this road, if it was successful, the upside would be huge, but the short term implications would be very challenging. I would not be able to draw salary for a little bit. And then when I would, it would be probably lower than when I started business school because I have to reinvest everything in the business. Same with my wife. I mean, she has a law degree and she's a you know, eight year career at that point. So we were taking, we used our savings to put into the business and to live on. We also set goals for ourselves. So um, this was May, 2014. So we really set like milestones for us. This is where we need to be by Christmas. This is where we need to be by a year from now. And then if we weren't there, then maybe there was no future and maybe we should fold the cards and move on to something else. We ended up blowing past these goals, thankfully, but it was important to set those goals to keep us in check. And then one more question on how prepared you were prior to the Kickstarter. So this is something that people worry about a lot. Like how should you have all of your ducks in a row before you launch something like this that might be a validation step? Or were you ready for this type of reaction? Yeah, I was, as I said, I used the, this as a case in a lot of my business school classes. So I took a lot of entrepreneurship classes and, you know, things that were really, really important were how to set up a company and how important that is from the get go. So we had all the legal paperwork, corporate, like the incorporation stuff really set up from the get go. So that was taken care of before, you know, we had a bank account set up, we had all, all this stuff that was really critical that I think a lot, it was really, really important that we did. Because I think a lot of people are like, eh, we can kick the can down the road and like, we'll deal with that later when it becomes more serious. And that's too late, honestly. Mm-hmm. Like, you need to do that stuff like ahead of time. And, you know, we, we did it online. It was not that expensive, but it was important to get it done. And important to note that we did it wrong also because we did it on like one of those really cheap sites, but it was done. So mm-hmm. we were able, after the Kickstarter, we were able to actually like do it properly with a law firm here in New York. And, but we did have all the documents set up in advance in terms of ownership and stock and, you know, everything that you need uh, for the structure, um, which is really, really important on the road. Like that can't be overlooked because things get serious really, really fast. And we were, Mm. we were really excited about where we were. Like we did, it was way beyond what we thought it would be. Like that was a lot of orders and we didn't have a process. Um, We ended up packing the orders, you know, ourselves, you know, along with task rabbits, we'd hire by the hour to like help build boxes and pack the orders with us because we didn't have a warehouse or a procedure on that. So it was just really like figuring stuff out on the fly. Yeah. And that's what I want to jump into next. So you have this great response from customers and now you've got to figure out all the logistics of this company. (laughs) What did that sort of look like? Oh man, it was it was exciting and it was a nightmare at the same time, <laughs> like really both like hand in hand. There's a few things that really jump out in terms of like moments where it was really real and really challenging and um, stuff. I really had no idea how to, you know, how to import goods from overseas. <laughs> it's like 
how does it get packed in a container? How does the container get on the ship? How do you get it <laughs> off the ship? How do you get it on a truck? How do you get it to the location? How do you pack it? How do you get it like in like to UPS? How do you have set up a UPS corporate account to like pick up all in bulk and like like all these questions that they seem pretty basic, but they're so important. It's like you can't operate without it. <laughs> it's impossible. So, you know, we leaned on some of our suppliers for help with how to like get it over here first. And at that point, then it was everything that could have went wrong, went wrong, like mm. no doubt about it. So <laughs> I, you know, I remember specifically, you know, over the course of the summer in 2014, we're communicating with our customers and we, we always still to this day, we always like to over communicate with them. And it's really important to make them feel like they're in the loop and, you know, we'd give them updates on production, you know, pictures of us in the factory and the packaging, like just to show that it's real and it's coming along and we're on schedule. And then as that kept happening, like we got closer and closer and closer, there was always obstacles and delays and challenges. I remember we sent out an email that was, you know, it's arriving to, to New York this week. We should have packages out next week. And we're so excited about that. And then lo and behold, like it was our first import. We're a new company, you know, bringing thousands of units, you know, for the first time. It was suspicious, I guess, to the government. So like they seized our container. Um, U.S. Customs and Border Control, and they you know, ripped it apart and inspected everything, and they held it for an indefinite amount of time. And like, this is the last thing I needed, right? I was like, I was like, come on, I'm like so harmless here. I'm just trying to like make my Kickstarter work. And you know, I, there's no information. There's no one to contact. You get a template email that says like, here's what's happening. We'll get back to you when we're done. Yeah, so actually, I rented a zip car and I got in the car and I drove down to the docks in Elizabeth, New Jersey, where the stuff came in. <laughs> And it was, you know, I'm there with thousands of containers in the shipyard, like trying to find out what's going on. There's this little office in the corner and I'm there and I'm like begging them to talk to somebody. I'm calling senators and councilmen. Like I really, I'm calling everybody in New Jersey to like, I got to get this thing released to get to some, because my, my future is on the line here. And it was just so stressful. And we eventually, like we ended up getting in touch with the right person, getting it released in a few days later. And then it was just like a, you know, a series of unfortunate events after that, you know, it comes and then we had trouble coordinating with the trucker, then the trucker picks it up and there's complications, then it's the wrong truck. So they come, we're in, you know, in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, they pull up on Greenpoint Avenue, which is like a two lane, like neighborhood street. And we have this tractor trailer, there's no loading dock at our, like our temporary office. So we can't get the goods off there and there's thousands <laughs> of boxes. So we need to plan. So we go to like down the street to this moving company that was there and we're like, we need movers right now how many guys do you have so we had this army of movers in greenpoint come in of like 10 guys on the spot it was raining also that day and there we're all climbing there's 10 guys and then i'm there with them and we're climbing into the container and we're breaking apart these pallets and bringing individual boxes and then we're just filling up this room that's about a thousand square feet and we have like 22 pallets at the time plus our like little office space and everything like the room was packed to the ceiling and to the walls with and we had no system set up to know where what is and organize it it was it was just like we were so unprepared for how complicated and overwhelming like it got really real at that moment and that was really the challenge it's like wow this is real and like we need systems here like both (laughs) on like accounting systems and inventory management systems. We need like systems physically to like know where stuff is and how to pick and pack it. And we're just figuring it out on the fly, but it was just complication after complication. It's like, you know, FedEx versus UPS versus the mail. What can we send internationally? We, we sent stuff out internationally. It got returned to us because we didn't do the proper paperwork because we didn't know the paperwork to do. So it was, you know, we had a, 
a fair amount of international customers amongst those first 1700. And it was just one thing after the other. And you just got to weather the storm, battle through and figure it out as fast as you can, really. So you mentioned earlier that a lot of your customers would then ask you questions about like you gave them sheets. They were great. And then said, where do I get this? Where do I get that? There's a tension there. It sounds like the initial expectations for Kickstarter, like things must have been a little bit late. How were you able to keep those customers so loyal and excited about Brooklyn? Uh, communication. Honestly, that's that's the most key thing. People want to be in the loop. They want to feel like they're part of the process. These people were the key to us getting the business off the ground. And we completely acknowledge that. And we're very appreciative of the support we got. And we were communicated that. And we made them feel like they were part of the process. So we showed them prototypes. We asked them for their opinion on patterns and colors and, fa- and fabrics and ideas. And we just really over-communicated. Like, here's where the production is. Here's where it is now. It's coming next week. What's your feedback? And really just including them. And that really made them feel like they're part of the founding team as well. And I think it's really, really important because then it's not just us. It's all these people that are, you know, everybody wants to be the person that brings the good idea to their friends or family. And so you got to try this, right? Because they found first. And like for those 1700 people, they were, and they, you know, we incentivize them to, you know, referral bonus and buy more. Um, yeah. It was really just about treating people well. That's the most amazing. important thing. Yeah. So when you're coming out with this initial product, it's it's sort of it's obviously a product that exists and everyone has bought before, but you're selling it in a very different way. So how did you think about pricing? Yeah, it's that's a complicated one. Um, <laughs> so we knew first we approached it from the customer angle. So what is our target or ideal customer? Like the right down the middle customer. What are they willing to spend? If it was too expensive, it wouldn't be suitable for that customer. If it was too cheap then they also it wouldn't be good enough of a product. So we had to get that right. So we talked to the customer in those interviews of what, what they were looking to pay, and we tried to optimize towards that. Then when you, you know, think about the unit economics of a business, you know, how much margin you need to make on any order. So whatever that nets out to, that math, is the maximum we could pay for the product. And then when we went to all these factories all over the world, it was, here's our budget per unit. What is the best product we can get at that budget? And that's the way we approached it. Now, our pricing, like it was way off at that point. So Kickstarter, like those customers got a steal, really. It was because we didn't really understand a lot of the contribution costs that come into it in terms of shipping and logistics and freight and everything that goes into it. So I'm just thinking about the cotton and sheet set and then the final cost, but there's so much in between. So we just had to learn and adjust. And I think if you're transparent with people also, we've raised our prices over the last few years, but we always communicate it. We always say, hey, customers, um, I'm paraphrasing. We, we, we say, in typically all text, we'll say a note from me that I actually personally write that says, we are raising our prices and here is why. I mean, cotton is a commodity. It fluctuates in price. Also, our cost raise, our team is way bigger. Our operation is way bigger and you know things get more complicated. So we need to marginally raise the prices. And if you have justification, you communicate in advance that people don't get angry, really. They appreciate the transparency. Hmm. Another thing I think uh, our founders are, are worried about is when you launch something and there are competitors in the space that are theoretically much bigger than you, you're like, oh, well, I would do X, Y, Z, but then I, I feel like I would just get squashed by name big company. Um, how did you think about that early on? And obviously, you have not been squashed. So, how? Yeah, I, I guess what was your thought process around that? 
Yeah, I mean, it's important to say, you know, who our competition is. And we are, we define that from the very, like, early days. There are companies that have, you know, mimicked our business or, you know, tried to replicate our products, but that's not really who our competition is. Our competition are the incumbents that have most of the market share. So those are the big box stores, and that's the department stores of the world. That's where the customers are uh, predisposed to purchasing these products. So what we had at our advantage was direct consumer relationships from the manufacturer, us, and straight to the distributor, us, on the website, and the customer, and the customer service was us. So we can get this feedback loop really, really tight to have really, really good product market fit, where the entire process for a department store to serve up this product is really long and complicated and expensive. And the person making the product is not the person getting the feedback on the product. There's many middlemen when you have wholesalers and distributors and then the retailers and then going all the way up the supply chain that it's hard to iterate on that and to really get it right and service the customers. So because we were so small and agile, it was actually an advantage to us. And we were able to kind of cruise under the radar and actually, you know, we were doing well and we are doing well, but the reality is we haven't even put a we barely put a dent in like what this market is in mm. in the world or in the United States, just because yes, we sell products that every single person more or less has, you know, in some way, shape, or form in their house, whether it's a pillow, whether it's sheets, whether it's towels, whatever it is. So the market opportunity is there. And it's just about getting with the right messaging, getting in front of people with the right messaging. So you mentioned fundraising earlier. Um, I imagine that you might have had the opportunity to, to fundraise or, or certainly thought about fundraising at this point after the Kickstarter. I'm curious how that went or how you think about it in general. Yeah, um, we really wanted to and we needed to because mm-hmm. it's expensive to run a business with yeah. physical goods. You have to buy a lot of goods. Um, you have to store them in the fulfillment. We weren't marketing at this point, but then when you start marketing, it's really expensive. Um, and then a team, of course, and at this point it was just Vicky and I, but um, we needed support, we needed help, we needed a team, and we had to pay them. And if you want good talent, you have to pay them what they're worth at that point. So we had to raise money, but we couldn't. I met almost every VC investor, I think, in New York City um, in 2014 and 2015. And I was so pumped about the proof of concept. You know, it was a quarter million dollars in one month. And then we launched our website in October of 2014 with like just, you know, brooklinen.com, not Kickstarter. Um, and we sold out, we had a wait list after the Kickstarter of like 2,500 people. And we sold out in less than a week, maybe four days or so, like bone dry, they, all of our inventory, which is great. So, and that was all the inventory we can afford. And I thought we had a really good proof of concept, but just every single investor shot it down. One after the next, like, this is not exciting. How big a business could this be? I got to see more, you know, it's a standard feedback. Like nobody actually tells you no. I was like, yeah, I want to see a little bit more, but like, when is it enough is really what you keep asking yourself, you know, and it kind of, I'll be honest, it put a chip on my shoulder at that point, because I thought we'd done really, really well, you know, based with no funding, with no anything, no resources. We've really, I thought we proved the concept, but yeah, nobody believed in it except us for a long time. And then we just got momentum. We figured it out on our own. We worked with our suppliers. We, we worked with banks also to, to get loans or you know whatever we needed to do. Um, find alternative ways to fund. We had a few angels that invested, you know, I don't know, like $25,000 each. Like we're not talking about huge, huge money here, but people that believed in us and that was really, really important. And they really made intros to other VCs that still wouldn't invest. And that really took until we finished 2016, where we grew from 2 million in 2015 to 20 million, just us 
in 2016 for people to take notice. And then we had some options at that point. So in Q1 2017, uh, we had a few options from investors that were interested at that point. And that was great. Now we have a higher valuation because we have so much revenue. So like uh, we have all the equity, we, have, we can really chart our own course. And then it was about who's the best fit. So we ended up um, raising money from First Mark Capital here in New York. And they're great. The portfolio is great. The team was great. The platform is great. Like everything was a really, really good fit for us. So uh, it made a lot of sense. And they've been a really good partner for us. What's your advice to founders who try and raise funding for, say, two, three, four months and it's not working out? Um, when is it time to stop and try and figure out stuff on your own? And, and when is it just not a fundable business? What, what do you think about that? I think two, three, four months is way too short. I, oh, think, okay. it, I think it easily takes more time than that. Okay. Um, for, for us, in that two years, I was really pounding the pavement and I was still networking. I was, I was trying to meet everybody and anybody I could, really, because it's hard to run it on a knife edge you know, with, without much funding, without much cash in the bank. There were times when we had no money in the bank, a few thousand bucks, and we had all these customers, all this revenue. We had a few thousand dollars just to make it work and you know, hope that things worked out. This is common, honestly. You know, Nike was made the same way. Walmart was made the same way. Like, it really, it's a common struggle, and I think it's really, really healthy. I actually think the best companies in the world have went through that, and I don't think the best companies in the world got all kinds of funding from day one and just blasted through money and raised more money and then blasted through money. I don't think that's the best way to make it work, honestly. So you learn in those early days when you have no money, like every single penny counts and you know how to be really in control and be really responsible. And then it's really served us well because in the grand scheme of things, we haven't raised that much money. We've only raised that one round two and a half years ago, almost at this point. And you know, we, the business is wildly successful on the heels of that just because we were trained ourselves for two and a half years to be really careful. Hmm. How are you thinking about prioritization in those early days in terms of like what you versus Vicky did and, and any early team? Yeah, um, important to have a division of responsibilities between the founders. That's like so critical. Um, I, I would encourage every founder and founding team, like the most important thing is to have that difficult conversation from the get-go of here's what you're responsible for and accountable for, and here's what I'll be accountable for. And they're different, they're separate, they're complementary, and we both know what our responsibilities are. We aren't co-CEOs. We don't have any overlapping responsibilities in the company. So we complement each other. I do my thing, she does her thing, and we work better. And then I respect her decisions in her lanes, and she respects my decisions in my lanes, and we have authority in our respective lanes on that. So um, I think that's really, really important so you don't get stuck with differences of opinion. You trust each other, and you're both in both your verticals or both or however many you are in, on your team. And that's really, really critical. And if you don't have that trust to let them execute, then they probably shouldn't be on your team. That's probably not a good fit, honestly. So that's probably a good gut check to you, like if you have the right co-founders. And would you recommend, this is a tough, this is a tough question, but would you recommend someone starting a company with their significant other? Definitely. Um, we had feedback also in the early days about, uh, you know, about that from VCs and investors about, uh, you know, husband and wife team. Um, I actually, I, I don't understand what I, okay. So I understand what the concern might be in some, some regards, but I also think like on the other end of the spectrum, it's way positive. Like we have so much trust in each other. I know that she's not going to screw me over. I'm not going to screw her over. We have a common goal and we're like attached to the hip here and we are so invested in it and we really care. Nobody's going to check out. We're both check, you know, we're both accountable for each other um, as well for the business. So I think it's actually a really, really important thing to have that trust so you can lean on each other. I think it's a positive, honestly. If I, if I was an investor, I would look at that, you know, I would, I would ask tough questions, but I'd also look at it as positive. Our founders that have come through Tacklebox, we've had 
probably five or six husband and wife teams and they've drastically outperformed. I've always thought that was really interesting. Uh, there's a lot of skepticism, but I would agree with that. And I totally believe that for the reasons that I just said. Yeah. Mm, cool. So you start to grow and you prior to raising money. So I'm, I'm, I believe in that essentialism where like 99% of the stuff that you do doesn't really matter and everyone sort of does it. And 1% really drives the outcome. Um, are there any fundamentals that you think were in that 1% bucket, things that just drove enormous value? I think just being so customer centric with everything you do, you have to be thinking about what does the customer want, take their feedback seriously, and just really keep iterating and optimizing. And sometimes that's against your instincts, but mm. at the end of the day, um, it's what matters. Like what matters is what the customer demands and what they want and you being able to service them. Because if you can't, someone else will meet their needs and then you're irrelevant at that point. So you have to listen really closely. Um, you also need to give them what they don't know about. So it's a little bit of a push pull on that. So, you know, Steve Jobs said, like customers don't really know what they want, so we have to give it to them. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. He has a quote that says, you know, something along those lines that they don't know it until we show it to them, which I think is really, really important because no one was like clamoring for our business. But once we showed it for, to them, people were like, oh, yeah, that's really great. I could really use that. I really want and desire that product. So you, you have to really listen closely. All the other stuff that you do, fundraising, banking, recruiting, like that stuff is the 99% that every company does. But I think the best companies really lean into their customers and, and build a strong relationship. What an awesome answer. So when you're deciding what next products to build, how do you think through that? And so you started with Sheets. What were the next products you made and where did that come from? I mean, for the first two years or so, it was just more Sheets. So uh -huh. it was a few different fabrics, a few you know, rotating colors, new patterns. We did some collaborations. Like we, It was just more and more about the bedding. We really wanted to establish our expertise. And I do think that taking page out of those other like early DTC company books that I mentioned before, it was Bonobos or Warby Parker, you need a hero product that people know you for. Like something that you can hang your hat on that like, that is the company that does this. And that's you know, the Nikes of the world did it with running shoes, right? Like long before they made basketball shorts or anything else, it was running shoes that were a better proposition for the customer. And I think you need that hero product no matter what. You need to stay focused. So for us, it was just go deeper and deeper and deeper, not wider. It took us a long time. We wanted to mine everything. We still do have this mentality. We have to go as deep as we can still in the bedding. And we still are. We have, we're always testing new products, new fabric, really just new designs, like everything that we can think of. Because we want to go deep and be known as the best bedding company in the world. Now, with that, when people come to us, then we build a relationship and then we open the door to show them everything else we can do. But that's what they're coming to us. That's also like super important. That was feedback from investors also, which was correct. It's not that we were doing something wrong at the time. We were on the right track. But I heard this also that, you know, stay focused, stay narrow and, you know, really know what your strengths are and you know go hard on that. Yeah, I think that you've done such a good job. Um, I've bought various products from you over the last couple of years. And I remember first when the Kickstarter came out and it really spoke to me. And I remember being like, wow, this is very different. And I was a Kickstarter nerd. I was like, all that stuff. But I thought you, you've done such a good job of vertical growth. And we've had a couple of companies on that haven't raised money, period, or haven't raised money for a while. And it seems like they do a really good job of vertical growth, of like create a relationship with that customer and continue to sell to them. Whereas companies that raise too early try and grow horizontally across different customer segments and are kind of shallow. That was just an observation, which I think you yeah. guys have done incredibly well. Yeah, I agree. I'm not in favor of the wide and shallow. I think you go narrow and deep and then you build a stronger relationship and a stronger brand to do that. Cool. Two more 
final questions. Second to last one, is there anything that really wasted your guys' time over the last couple of years? Something that you thought might be good, but wasn't? I don't think so, honestly. Cool. I think everything you should look at everything you do with regards to the business is to be educational, even if it's a failure. So all of those investor conversations that I had, like they sucked for two years and to get rejected and rejected and rejected, it's hard and it makes you lose belief sometimes, but you need to keep that and hang on to that and really push forward. But yeah, everyone has a different opinion and all, every single one of those investors with the exception of first mark and you know, uh, the couple of the others that you know, made us offers around the same time were wrong. And I'm proud to say that, that, you know, we proved them wrong. So, but their feedback was all very educational, you know, to, you know, how to service the customers, what we should be doing. Everyone has an opinion. So you just need, need to listen and filter. I don't think there's anything that was a waste of time. I did, even though like I spent two years trying to raise money and didn't raise any in that time until the end. I think every single one of those conversations was important that I had and, and I learned something and same thing, like. I did customer service for the company for the first year and a half myself, and I was able to get feedback from the customers. And that's like a huge time suck. I did that for many hours a day, but I learned so much from you know what the pain points were and, and really able to address them. So I have no regrets for anything that wasted time. I think you have to just look at it as like everything I'm doing is valuable and contributing. Wow. That's another great answer. Uh, <laughs> and then the last one, which we've asked everyone, which is more about your approach. Um, so if you were going to start a taco truck tomorrow, if you're like, you know what, we're selling, Brooklyn, we're selling Brooklyn and I'm going to the taco truck business, what would be the first couple of things you would do when you were starting that taco truck? It's a great question, actually. Um, so first is the product. So there's a lot of taco companies out there, right? or taco trucks, taco stands, and so on. So yeah, differentiated product, something new to offer and really have something to hang your hat on. So whether it's organic meat, natural meat, vegan tacos, whatever it is to have something. Again, I'm a big believer, narrow, no, speak to your audience and target them. So if it was, I'm not a vegan, but I'm just using an example. But you know, if it was vegan tacos and I'm speaking only to the vegan audience and giving them an amazing proposition at that point, then that's something that's interesting. And I know I've built a strong relationship with somebody rather than just like spraying around and just trying to, you know, just have another commoditized product. So um, what I would do is really hone in on like a narrower offering on that. And then after that, you know, taco truck, it's probably where is my audience and location on that. So it's like, where do I want to set up to be in front of that audience? So really everything we do and you know, my mentality in this is customer, customer, customer. So it's like, who is the customer? How are you going to build that bridge? And then where are they? Awesome. I love that. So I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you so much for this. This is super, super helpful. I will make a plug for you and then ask you what your favorite product of Brooklyn is. My favorite is the recent product that I, I don't know if it's my favorite, but I'm very into it these days. I got the real fluffy towels. Mm -hmm. I'm just freaking loving them. So yeah. that's, I would suggest that. I don't know if you've got any. So they're great, honestly. I was actually going to go for the same thing, our super plush towels. Um, oh. They're the plushest on the market, I can say, and coziest, like emphatically. It's a really differentiated product. So if you haven't refreshed your towels in a long time, uh, I strongly recommend it. It's, it's a different experience. I, it's, I will totally agree. They're awesome. Um, this was great. Thank you so much. Got so much out of this. I Thanks really so appreciate much. it. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. Buy Brooklyn and stuff. It's awesome. And if you've got a startup idea and a full-time job, come say hi to me at gettacklebox.com. Also, if you want to help out the podcast, rate us, give us a review, share with somebody. All that stuff helps a lot. Appreciate it. Have a great week.